if you're in a low trust environment or culture, you can measure your words as carefully as you want, and somebody's still going to misinterpret. Excited for this conversation today. Have Bruce Brown from Proactive Coaching with me, and I've Bruce and I have never met or talked till today, but. I've been aware of his work and read some of his books um, over the last 20 years. So I'm just excited for the conversation and to learn from you. So Bruce, thanks for thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Coach. It's really an honor to be with you. Yeah, great. So let's start out. Just tell us a little bit. Give us the background of your career. And then, you know, the listeners are, are coaches and athletic leaders um, looking to work better with this generation of, of, of athletes. So kind of background and then... Why should these folks care what you have to say? I'm not sure why they should care about anything I have to say. I have five daughters, and I think they're always surprised when anybody listens to me. So we'll, <laughs> I have we'll two. See. That's true in my life. <laughs> so teacher and a coach for 32 years, uh, athletic administrator. Uh, knew that's what I wanted to do when I was really young. I had some uh, great mentors within my family and close to me. Uh, that made me to think I, I, when I grew up, that's who I want to be. I actually started coaching Bob when I was 13. And uh, I was helping with a little league team and there were 12 year olds. And I was 13. And then the next year, now I'm talking about a long time ago. So you wouldn't see this today. But when I was 14, they gave me a team of my own. So it was like, okay, this is pretty great. So I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, went to Washington State University um, as a Great preparation in physical education and in education in general. Um, like I said, my wife and I both taught and coached for our entire careers, coached football, basketball, baseball, volleyball, badminton. She coached track and gymnastics. Um, we love that profession. Um, I have been an administrator. I've been coached at the junior high, at the high school, and the community college and the college level. Um, worked in the scouting department for the NFL for for uh, eight years. So kind of got a wide, wide range of experiences and um, looked, I loved all of them. You know, I loved all those different levels of education. So that's probably a little bit of a background. We're still, when I got done, it was funny because I, after in my 30th year of public school teaching, uh, they actually were penalizing you in retirement if you went beyond 30 years. <laughs> they were trying to get rid of the higher paid teachers, the ones at the top of the salary schedule, the older teachers, and bring in new new teachers, which I think is always a good idea. But it was, I would have, I don't know if I'd have retired. I think I might have still been coaching and teaching. I, I absolutely loved what I did. And so when we had stopped doing that, we had started speaking already before I retired at a bunch of different places and, and it just kind of turned continued on as a teacher. What are what we're doing now with proactive coaching really is just teaching. And uh, I, I think um, all, all your all your best coaches are also great teachers. So I, I think it's just the teaching that that has attracted me to this and kept me doing it. So how'd you get in? Tell us more about what you what proactive coaching does and more of like the how you got got into that part and doing that work because I know a lot of people that it's impacted over the years. Well, thank you. Proactive coaching is a character-based model for coaching. It's a character-based leadership, character-based uh, training, character-based athletes, character-based cultures, uh, everything we do. And I got started in it. It was 
you know, when you first start getting asked to speak at coaching clinics, it's because your teams have done real well and everybody wants to know your secrets. You know, how do you defend this? What do you run against that? You know, and so I was getting invited to some pretty good size coaching clinics and uh, speaking on technical parts of the game. And I finally was speaking at one down in San Francisco, like five years in a row, got to know the people that were running up well enough. That I went into them and said, you know what? I love being here. I'm always honored to be part of your program. Um, but the truth is, and I, and I love the technical parts of the game, but I said, the truth is, I don't think that's where we're winning. I mean, you're having me here because our teams are well, but I don't think that's where we're winning. And they said, talk to us. And I said, I think it's this other stuff we do that's intentionally incorporating character into our coaching styles, into our kids' lives, into the culture of our teams, all those things. And they said, you start talking on that. So that was kind of a reach, Rob. I, I think it was a reach for him at that time. Um, the only non-X's and O's speakers were sports psych guys. Uh, Tom Tutko uh, was one of them. There's, uh, there's Harvey, uh, the baseball guy. Anyway, and so this was really a reach for them. And as soon as I started doing that, it just grew word of mouth. And so everything we've done has been kind of word of mouth. And then at, at, after a few years after I retired, I was asked to take a job as an athletic director at an NAI school. And the NAI was starting a program called Champions of Character. And they came to me and said, we've got this concept. We think you've got the content. <laughs> so so I, they asked if I would come. And so for eight years, I think it was eight years, maybe nine years, uh, Rob Miller and I traveled and spoke on small college campuses, um, and it was just a, a delightful time. And and really these great people on these small college campuses were so thankful you were there. So that that also opened up a lot of doors. So it's it's been it's been a huge blessing. People ask me when I'm retiring. I'm, I said, you know, I'm only seventy seven, and I, I I don't think I'm ready for that. I, I don't know if I'll ever retire from something below. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I I have pretty much retired from traveling. Um, so all my travel that I do now is either to really long-term clients or based on friendship. Um, and, and and Rob does all the other traveling. So mm -hmm. that's pretty much where we started and where we, where we are today. Yeah. Well, tell me about, I mean, I think something that scares people off from being all in on a you know, whether it's the character-based model with proactive that you guys do with 3D coaching is how do you get buy-in to do it across the board? Tell me when you're working with like athletic departments or large coaching staffs, talk about the process of getting buy-in to, to the concept of the model. One of the, one of the most attractive things about coaching is the autonomy. Um, there is no one way to do it. And so you know, I'm not sure you ever get by. And I think what you do is you really challenge people on why they do it and why they do it the way they do it. It's one of the questions we ask. Why do you coach? And why do you coach the way you coach? And you're not trying to challenge them to upset them. You're just trying to make them really think of why they're doing this. So the autonomy allows for all these different things. And the truth is, I think most coaches start off coaching as they were coached, good or bad. And they stay that way until they're either forced to change or they're forced to leave, or they kind of go, you know what, there's a better way to do this. 
Mm-hmm. And so we're not really trying to go in and, and, you know, I think one of the things that sells what we do and, and is, is everything we talk about as application. It has immediate application. They should be able to listen to any one of our presentations. I think we have about 16 different presentations. They should be able to listen to any one of those presentations and say, I can take what I learned right there and I can go out to practice today and I can apply it with that athlete or I can apply it to our whole team culture, or I can apply that into the way we look at mistakes or whatever it might be. <clears throat> Everything we do is application. So I think that's attractive. Coaches are application people. They're not philosophic people. We are not. I am not a philosophical person. My, my writing is, is just real straightforward and simple and concise. Um, I, I don't even really consider myself a writer. I, I, I just write like a talk. And so... But, uh, you know, evidently it's it's done okay with that. And and I, I don't know, uh, how do you get buy-in? I, I think what you do is is you realize people, it gives them a better chance for success in every way. I think the way that you uh, coach, if you coach intentionally with character-based principles, um, I think it gives you a better chance for success in every way, including the scoreboard. And so the fact that so many people have, change their coaching style and then change their coaching record uh, is, is I think, helpful. Um, you know, and when you talk to coaches about their track record, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if you're talking about high school and college coaches or professional coaches, um, you know, most people look at their track record and, and say the track record is a win-loss record. But particularly high school coaches, I don't think your track record, your win-loss record is important and it's a factor, but your real track record are the athletes that you work with. And I think that's true for college as well. Professionals, you know, it's a different, uh, we've worked with a lot of professional teams. It's a different atmosphere. Athletes are phenomenal. They're bright. They're invested. Um, but it's a little bit of a mercenary thing. I'll go wherever the most money is. Um, but the, but the, High school and college, your track record is really your athletes that you worked with. And are they still in your life? Or, or were you, are they still in contact with you? Did you go to marriages? Did you, you know, it, just all the things. If you want to find out what a great coach's track record is, go, in, go interview their athletes. Yeah, well said. Do you think, do you think athletes have changed over the last 20 years in terms of how to approach and lead them? Or do you think the principles have stayed the same? <sighs> You know, I think I think everything changes. Um, but I'll, I'll take you back to a, a, a moment in my life that was that was really special. Um, I, I think it was uh, it was at Fresno Pacific University, and it was a two day coaching clinic, and it was a two person clinic. And so the other person besides me, are you ready for this? Was a John Wood, and so we alternated. Say, say that again in case people didn't hear you. <laughs> Two-person clinic, and the other speaker was John Wood. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, let's uh, go on. One of my long, you know, one of my long-distance mentors, uh, long-distance mentors, people. I mean, you have mentors in your life, and long-distance one is usually people you watch and admire, and you read and you study and that kind of stuff. And I'd had a chance to meet him before, but it's a chance for me to really spend quality time. Um, he was ninety-four at the time. Uh, absolutely amazing, Rob. Absolutely amazing. Uh, he, he, you know, we alternated presentations for two days. He, not a hesitation, not a glitch, not a repeat. He's quoting poetry. He, it, it was he, he had those 
young people and those coaches. It was for athletes and coaches. He just had them in the palm of his hand. It was it was absolutely amazing to watch and listen and be there. But his body was, you know, 94 years old, but his mind was about 36. I mean, he needed help opening his sandwich. He looks over to me. He goes, he goes, Lily, help. I got you. <laughs> Anyway, did he go on poetry after that? Yeah. Well, at the end of the clinic, they were doing a press conference, and you know, I have no idea why they wanted me sitting on the stage while all these people, TV and radio people, were interviewing him. But there are the two of us sitting on the stage. When he's sitting on the stage next to John Wood, you're kind of like, I wonder what he's going to say. You really don't want to pop off and say, I think I got some answers here. So. One of the questions was, how much have kids changed in all your years of coaching? And I am sitting there thinking, not what I'm going to say. I'm thinking, what is he going to say? And he looked up at him, and with that sparkle in his eyes, he said, you know what? Kids have changed very little. They're all born good. But our society has changed dramatically. And more than any other time that I can remember in my life, we need more people outside the family walking with our kids. And I just thought, I don't need to say a word. Um, you know, young people are young people. Um, there have been things that have gone on in our society that's caused changes in, you know, the way they're raised, the kinds of experiences they have, the technology that's available. Just there's been a lot of changes in society. But I think I, I'll agree with the coach. I, I don't know if I've ever met a, a young person who wasn't born to be good. You know, they're all born good. And so now it's a matter of what are we going to do as coaches to walk alongside them, to be one of those people outside the family that has that opportunity. That's really good stuff. We might need to just end the conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets to, um, you, you've hit on it a few times, I think, in a roundabout way, but a lot of what you're doing comes back to coaches and leaders really having formed a purpose for what they're doing. Um, how can coaches and administrators, especially young ones, develop this purpose? I think you just got to answer the question, uh, why do I coach? And you've got to really get down to your your true why. That book by Simon Sinek, Start With Why, applies to coaches so well. And, and uh you know, I think it's just a matter of just kind of. I know when I hired, when I was hiring coaches as an athletic director, those are that was that was one of the questions I'd ask them. I mean, why do you coach, and why do you coach the way you coach? I'm not challenging yep. the way you coach, but why? You know, we all have a way that we coach, and I want to know what theirs is. Um, you know, that was one of the questions that I would ask. Um, another question I would ask was, what what would you compromise? What would you compromise, and what would you never compromise? Because I, I wanted to know their boundaries. I wanted to know where they're... That kind of sets them up to their purpose. It kind of is like, okay, I will never I will never give in. I'll never compromise on this. Kind of gives you an insight into their purpose. Um, you know, is their purpose self-serving? Is their purpose uh, service? Is their purpose love of the game? Is their purpose... You know, what what is it about that? So, you know, I... I uh, I think that it, it takes some examination. Like I said, most of us start off coaching as we were coached. And and a lot of people start off coaching for the wrong reasons. Uh, and, and But I think the ones that, that have identified why they're doing this really early in their career are the ones that stay in it. 
and the ones that are doing it without uh, a, a really strong purpose and a really strong why and are not intentional about those two things. Not in, you know, one of the things we talk about all the time is intentionality with everything we do. Everything you do should be intentional. It's, that means it's well thought out and there's a purpose for it. So I think those people who are purposeful um, and intentional and, you know, caring and all that stuff, th those are the ones that are, they've identified their why. They're going to stay in the profession. They can, they can work their way through those peaks and valleys that every coach is going to have because their purpose, their foundation is solid, you know. Yeah, that's well said. And I don't know. I look at, I spent a decade coaching before administration and I don't, I couldn't have developed a purpose unless I had some really good people leading me and, and walking with me. Um, because at the core of it, I think there is a level of selfishness that, that brings you into it. Uh, if you want to become somebody you admired and be yeah. admired and, um, yeah, and you, and you want to win. And I think that's an interesting, love to hear your thoughts on the, values conflict that come into play between the character-based holistic coaching approach and winning that do, do you see those in ways can they conflict or do you see them going hand in hand i think they conflict uh, you know sometimes uh, we'll have a i was working with a coach one time who was um, very very successful on the scoreboard and was not a, a relationship-based coach he was he drove us. He, he was very driven himself. A lot of what he was doing, very honestly, from a, I, I knew him pretty well. It was, was pretty much about him, and he really worked at changing because he saw the value of it in the long run. And it happened kind of with, when one of his favorite players got married and did invite him. And, and I was invited. He, he asked me, he said, Coach, he said, did you go to Todd's wedding? And I said, yes. And he said, why wasn't I invited? And I, I felt like telling him the exact truth. You know, and then I thought, you know, I'm not sure. Why don't you talk, you know, why don't you talk to somebody that had teammates or, you know, and, or we can talk about that sometime when we're out, you know, at a camp together or something like that. And uh, anyway, he tried to change. And they lost, he, he lost, started losing more than he was normal, and he attributed to that. So he, he fell back in that trap of attributing the success to the way that he had done it before. And so the winning thing is, it's important to win at the competitive level. I think from age 14, you know, on, I, I think it's important for your kids to experience success. When they experience success, there is easier buy-in and all the character stuff. Yeah, agree. And when you do win and you attribute it back to the way that they behave and the way that they train and the accountability factor and the team culture, when you succeed and you attribute it back to that, they, they buy in more. And so it becomes even stronger. But it, I think one of the things that a coach has to do, again, early in their career with forming a philosophy, uh, I've taught some classes to college kids on the, the principles of coaching and, and really making them, you know, really think – like we talked about before, who they are, why they do it, why they do it, the way they do it. Um, and I think when you're when you're doing that, you it makes you kind of say, how do I define winning? And that was one of the questions I had. How do you define winning? And the, the scoreboard is the easiest way to define winning, but the truth is uh, there's lots of ways to win. 
you know, and, and, and I think if you have a bigger perspective on life and a bigger perspective of the coaching profession and athletics in general, you see there's lots of ways to win. Improvement is winning. You know, uh, you know, getting together and operating as a great team is winning. Um, individual kids go on to success and, and, and take some of the character traits and stuff that they learn from you and apply it in the rest of the life. That's winning. The, the scoreboard is important. And it, it will always be important, but it's not the only way that you measure success. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you look at Coach Wooden's pyramid of success, um, there's competitive greatness in there, and his kids were his kids were competitive. But the truth is, there's lots of ways that they put lots of things they build into their winning and into their winning philosophy. Yeah, it's something I've really grown to to struggle with because. Winning is absolutely more fun than losing. And I think winning gives you a better platform. But in my position as an AD now, the most growth I see out of people and teams and coaches is when they lose or they don't get the spot they want. And sticking with it and dealing with that adversity, disappointment, and coming out on the other side of it. So it's hard where you want to win, but the most value sometimes comes from from the opposite. I, I, I'm not, I don't lose very well. Yeah, I really had to train myself because uh, I knew that about myself, and I needed to train myself to choose my time and place and choose my words. And so I, I really had to. That was something I had to to train myself to do. And and I think it's there's so many people that tie their value to events and losses in the coaching profession that if if you want to stay in it, you've got to brighten your perspective. You know, you've got to widen it. You've got to broaden it to the point where your perspective is covers a whole lot more than the scoreboard. And I, you know, like I said, I I was fortunate to coach a lot of really great teams, and and winning is fun. <laughs> so, do you have practical tips of how to broaden that perspective? Because, I mean, it sounds great as we're talking here. So flipping hard in the moment. or in the process of a hard season. Marry the right spouse. That's what you do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you have people in your inner circle, especially the ones that are closest to you, that can bring you back. You know, uh, I I refer to my wife, Dana, who is also a teacher and a coach and just a fabulous, fabulous woman of God. And she, you know, she, she, she... I just call her the voice of reason. And, uh, you know, every time I start losing perspective, she can bring me back. And I have, I had some other coaching friends who could do the same. And I had friends of mine who asked me to do that. You know, uh, friends of mine who I would say, you know, hey, I'm going to give you a call. Da, 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 da. I just need some, I just need a different perspective. And so I think, there's, you know, that's one of the things about the coaches and the, and the buy-in and the change I think so many young coaches don't want to admit they don't know everything. I remember being there. You don't want to admit mm-hmm. you don't. But, but, the, but, the, but the truth is, if, if you're really wise and you want to stay in the profession, develop some mentors. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they don't have to be people who are in your life on a day-to-day basis. They can be long-distance mentors. They can be, you know, you can surround yourself with people in your circle. But, but having mentors who've been there before and been successful who can bring you back to reality, who can look you in the eye and tell you the truth, okay? I think that is the quickest way to grow. 
Mm-hmm. I think the spiritual element really, really falls in line too. Sports can pre- be a pretty awful God. Um, did your faith pretty play a pretty big play a pretty big role in in how you viewed coaching? As I aged, it grew more and more. It, it, yeah. it was more and more my foundation for stuff. And, and uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we work with a lot of coaches who are not believers. And and I always say yet, uh, because I, I, I think that people are going to see the value of faith in everything they do, not just coaching, mm-hmm. but in every yeah. single facet of their life. Yeah, I know for me, that was something that, that did eventually broaden my perspective because um, mm-hmm. you can, you can have an eternal impact on people and, and lose a ball game. So that, that matters a little bit more. Um, so let's, let's switch. I want to hear your thoughts on, um, on toughness and grit. So I'm a, I'm a big Tim Elmore fan. I got to hear him speak um, recently and he talked about with generation Z, which I think defined as born in 2000 or later, you have to begin with empathy as a leader in order to get to grit or toughness. So begin with empathy to get to grit. Give me your, give me your thoughts on that. I think he's, I think he's very accurate there. And I, I would say I would extend empathy to trust. Um, and how do you build trust? And it's, I, it's one of the, one of our booklets that I wrote. I've written about anyway. It was one of the booklets that I wrote. It might be the most important one I've written. And it's called The Impact of Trust. And I, I wrote it because I, as I was traveling around the country and speaking to places, you'd come across on the same campus and side-by-side fields. You look at one field and you'd see, whoa, really low trust. And then you look at the other field and go, whoa, really high trust. And it's visible. And so I started thinking, okay, what is the difference? And so I, I wrote a bunch of, had a bunch of stuff in writing um, that were just my own thoughts based upon my own experience and, and what I had people I'd talked to. And then I did something really smart, Rob. I, 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 I set up, I went to a local high school and the athletic director there, it's, it's our local high school on our island, and the athletic director there had a, a captain's council uh, representatives from every one of the teams in the, in the school. And I asked him if I could come in and talk to him and I went in and I, and I talked to him for a little bit and I gave him a questionnaire. And I said, have you ever had a coach that you trusted? If so, why did you trust them? And then what difference did that trust make in your performance? And then I flipped the question and said, have you ever had a coach you distrusted? If so, why did you distrust them? And what difference did the distrust make in your performance? And oh my goodness, their answers just blew me out of the water. Kids are so clear. They just, they're, they're succinct. They just cut to the chase. They, they're truth tellers. And I had all these answers and I came home and I started reading them. And then I thought, oh, this is too good. So I started emailing athletic director friends of mine, high school and college, all the places we've spoken around the country and said, would you mind asking your athletes these things? And I started, <laughs> and I started going to former athletes and, and, you know, and I got, I got a thousand responses from you know, one university in Southern California. Anyway, their answers were very consistent their answers were extremely consistent on what it does. And it, in reality, it supported what I had already believed and what I'd already written, but, they, but it gave it so much more depth and application on both what allowed them to trust them and what, why did they distrust them. And so, so trust was huge. And the three things that I came up with in the booklet, 
because I'm not somebody who makes tries to make things complex. Matter of fact, you try to like, take complex things and make them appear simple. Okay. That's kind of the way I taught and that's the way I coached. And hopefully that's the way I write, but came up with three things that allow coaches to be trusted. And then, and the number one thing um, is, is their, is their competence. And that was became their, how good they were at actually coaching the game and coaching the athletes became more and more important the higher the level of competition. You know, for a for a 10-year-old, how good the coach was wasn't really that important. But for a 16-year-old or 18-year-old or a 23-year-old, how good the coach is allows you to allows you to trust them or distrust them. And it's competence. And there's lots, lots of factors that are that are in that particular category of coaching. Um uh, that allow, you know, that there's like 12 different sections in the booklet on that. That, you know, different parts of coaching that I looked at. But the second thing that allowed coaches to be trusted is that they care. And that's the empathy piece. Okay, so the empathy piece for me was, you can, you can, you can know all kinds of stuff about the game. You can be really knowledgeable about the game and your ability to teach about it. If you don't care about your kids, you better win every game and it probably still not going to be enough. If you don't care about the people you're working with, that's the empathy piece and that opens the door for an awful lot of kids. You have to have all three of these things. The first one was confidence. The second one was care. The third piece was character, their personal character. And that's the one that's probably the most difficult to actually see because you got to know somebody pretty well. People can fake, you know, but it's the one you can lose the fastest and the one that's hardest to regain, the character piece. And so for me, that was the start of teaching anything that I taught, whether it was whether it was work habits, whether it was mental toughness, whether it was accountability, whether it was selflessness. Uh, you know, we have one of our presentations, a booklet's called Life Lessons for Athletes. We identified 10 things that we hope every kid who, who gets involved in athletics learns from it, the lessons they can learn and apply for their life. And, and for me, the door opener to that is, do I trust this person who's teaching me this stuff? Mm-hmm. And that comes back to competence, care, and character. And you you miss on one of those, and you know it's tough to regain it. It's really really tough to regain it. So the, the first step, I think, his comment on empathy, I would put in the care category. Yes, mm-hmm. that's that's exactly true. You know, it, it allows kids to open up to you. One of the things we talk about all the time is. Every kid you coach has a story. Every kid you coach has a story. Learned. Take the time to learn that story. That opens the door to, I care about you more than just your athletic ability. And once that door, you know, the kid knows that you care enough to even learn about it, it opens up all kinds of things. That's why he acts this way. Okay, that's why he needs to learn this particular character trait. That's why we need to focus on this the behavioral changes that need to happen, it, that explains it. It's easy to see a bad behavior, but you've got to look closer to see why is that behavior happening. And oftentimes it's their story that opens up that door, which opens up a chance for growth. So when you talk about, you know, um, when when Tim was talking about empathy, I think that's exactly right. We have a process for teaching these character traits. Um I don't know if you want to talk about that or not. Well, that was my follow-up question. I'm especially interested on the the care piece. Um, 
you talked about learning, learning a kid's story. What are some other practical ways coaches can demonstrate care from the research you've done? You know what? I've got a ton of them in that section of the booklet. Some of them are so simple. The way you greet kids, and I don't mean you've got to stand and practice and shake or hug every kid or shake every kid's hand or, you know, but just the look on your face. You know, I worked with a coach one time. I said, a very successful coach, and he came and he said, you know what? We, we, we have had all these great players, but we've never made it to the College World Series. And he said, I'm missing something. And we spent two days talking about this. And I just basically asked him questions and let him give me, how do, you know, how do you coach? What do you do here? Why are you doing And after about two days, he was actually up here on our island for a retreat. So it was very relaxed. And I said, I said, Coach, do you love your players? And he goes, yeah. And I said, do they know? He goes, probably not. <laughs> and I said, bingo. Yeah. There it is. So we spent the rest of that day talking about small things that you can do to just demonstrate care. And in his case, he was so, he was wound so tight. He was so competitive. He's a perfectionist. He has, um, you know, he, he just, he, he has a deep level of care himself. But because he is so intent and intense, I think the kids don't know. So they're they're care they're careful around him, you know. So I said, you've got to break that. Um, you've got to you've got to you've got to break that tentativeness and down. Uh, and you're not going to lose you know control or respect or anything by doing this. You're going to gain it. Mm-hmm. We talked about just like greeting kids and that how you greet kids with your eyes. And you know we've all had teachers when you walk into the room in, in one teacher's classroom. And, they kind of look up and look right back down and do what they're doing without any expression at all. Then you walk into the next teacher's classroom and they look up at you and their eyes light up. They're saying, I'm glad you're here. They don't have to say a word. But the way they greet you with your eyes says, they're glad I'm here. So I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> and so there's just, there's, there's tons of ways that you demonstrate care. One of the ways you demonstrate care is how you deal with kids' mistakes. And especially in a competitive situation, and there's a, there's a, we have a whole presentation on this, but how do you deal with kids' mistakes? And I don't know if you want to go into that or not, but... I'm all ears on anything you want to say. Okay, so, you know, it's... Unless it's you want to sell some bucks, then don't give away your secrets. Your call. We are mission-driven, not money-driven. So, uh, think, what, think what we ask our kids to do. We're constantly asking to learn new skills, new strategies, new techniques... And and as soon as they learn it, we say, okay, do it faster. And so so every time we ask them to do that, it requires a certain level of failure. That's being an athlete. It requires mm-hmm. failure. Very kids get anything on the first try. So really, we are in a, we are constantly asking kids to fail. And it isn't just failure; it's public failure. Mm-hmm. Hey, would you mind failing in front of five thousand people here when I, because I'm asking you to do this and you're not able to do it yet? Okay, so. <laughs> It's public and it's emotional. And so how do we deal with kids' mistakes? And I, I can give you a kind of a short version on this, but it's basically for coaches to learn how to differentiate between the type of mistake it was. 
And that's not difficult. None of the stuff we teach, I don't think is difficult. It's challenging, I think, but not, you know, it's not difficult. Yeah. Well, I look at a mistake a kid makes, whether it's in practice or whether it's, you know, away from the field or, you know, whatever. anyway, but mainly talking about mistakes athletically. And I look at that kid and I go, okay, was that a mistake made with lack of attention, carelessness, goofing around? Okay, that's a behavioral problem. That's another presentation. That's called the power of your words, how you get kids to change those behaviors. So that's a behavioral problem. And I deal with that totally different. If you look at the mistake and you said that mistake was made at full effort and full attention, that kid was doing everything they could based upon where they are right now at their level of skill to do that the best that they could. And if that's the case, I need to find a way to dignify it. Uh-huh. You dignify all mistakes made at full effort and full attention. It's okay to play for this coach and make a mistake. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to make the same mistake again. I do want to get better at this, but I know the mistake's not going to, I'm not going to be injured mentally by a mistake I make. Okay. Uh, and the, there's another part of this. There's a bunch of different parts of this, but, you know, if you've ever met, played for a coach that took you out of a game, you made a mistake and they took you out. And I think we've all experienced that. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're just doggone street tough, Rob, you know, it changes the way you play. So if you get yanked out of a game and you make a mistake, without even any words, I mean, words, using some words could be worse even, but just the fact that you, what, you're, what you learned is I can't make a mistake and play for this guy. So how do you play? How does the normal athlete play? They play nervously, tentatively, carefully, fearfully. Well, that's not the way I wanted my athletes to compete. I don't care whether whether I was coaching junior high school girls, I was coaching college men. I did not want my athletes to compete. I wanted my kids to compete fearlessly. I want them on the attack. I want them coming after you. And and I, fearlessly, fearfully, fearlessly does not mean carelessly. Fear, mm-hmm. Fearless. I have no fear. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to go at it as hard as I can. I'm going to let that mistake get behind me. And that gets back to mental toughness. The fact that I can get over my mistakes quickly and not let them stay with me. There's, there's a whole lot of parts on that, but that, that comes back to trust. Yeah. So if you, if you want to, if you want a fearless culture, you must examine the way that you as a coach deal with kids' mistakes. Yeah, and, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about two things that I'm listening to. I think it's powerful of distinguishing be, on the type of mistake. Uh, lack of effort, lack of focus. Yeah, you should get pulled. If it's just a straight up, ah, I screwed that up, it, it leads to fear. And then the other thing I'm thinking about, and Rob Miller and I were recently talking about this. Um, have you heard of the book, uh, Do Hard Things, that came out yes. in the last couple of years? Um, they define toughness as an environment for a team or community uh, of psychological safety, just meaning I can screw up, but if I'm following the rules, um, I'm going to be part of the team still. And then the ability to get better. And that aligns with everything you just said. Yeah. You're you're ahead of these guys. It it, it, it all gets back to, for me, almost everything we do now that I've written that, but that's one of the last ones I've written, it's like, okay, yeah, it gets back to trust, doesn't it? That gets back to trust. It's even with your words, you know, even with the words you use. If you're in a low trust environment or culture, 
You can measure your words as carefully as you want, and somebody is still going to misinterpret them. Okay. <laughs> They're going to put their own interpretation on If it's low trust, if it's high trust, you can say the stupidest thing in the whole world and they'll go, you know what? I know what he really meant because I yeah. know what he cares about. And so, so, you know, even when you don't react really, really well, there's still, you know, the trust is still, there's still a, a, a bond there and it's going to take more than just one mistake to, to break that trust. So, you know, I, I, I really, um, I really hope, I really think that fearlessness culture, I, I wanted my player, I, when they made a mistake, I didn't even want them looking at me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, I can remember playing for a certain coach, and every time I made a mistake, you look at him because you didn't know what's he coming out of you, you know, he's going to be just screaming at you. And, and, you know, I told my kids, I said, you know, here, here's, here's the way we play, here's what our culture says about fearlessness, and here's, you know, as long as you're giving me everything and your teammates, everything you've got, I'm going to honor that and I'm going to dignify any mistakes you make. You, you know, don't don't when you make my mistake, don't don't get down and get out of you about it and make another one. That's a that's a behavioral choice. But the actual, you know, that whole thing of going as hard as you can and, and I'm gonna dignify that. And I'll say, I don't want you looking at me on the bench when when you make a mistake. I want you looking at your teammates and getting back in the game and meeting. You know, I, matter of fact, I had, when I had a kid or two that would look at me after a mistake, I would intentionally turn to be talking to an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't see it, and it was it was a small thing, but there were a couple of kids I had to do that with, and I don't know if it's previous coaching or if it's parents or yeah, what where that where that was coming from. But I, I did not want to be the one that was causing them to lose trust or to lose confidence, and and I didn't want them to be the one that was going to get them out of an attack mentality. And I think all this comes back to the. What we started talking about on the being the conversation of being grounded and purpose and beyond winning, because the emotion of the moment makes us do stupid stuff. And if you're not grounded in it, I've seen wonderful people who care about the right things lose trust in a relationship in one bad moment in a game because they were you know, tied in, in winning. And that's you know, the, I, that's the hard part of this line of work, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I look back at my um Failures as a coach, it almost always comes with something that happened in an emotional moment with my own with my own words. Yep. And you know, I, I tell coaches, I said, you can't do this job. You can't coach if you coach for more than a month, you're gonna get in your car at the end of practice and you're gonna sit down and you're gonna say, doggone it, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I could rewind the tape and do that over again. You need to go correct that with that athlete tomorrow. I need to make sure I make that right with them. This is coaching and parenting. They're not professions of perfection. We're going to make mistakes. It's emotional. It's competitive. And so what you try to do is you try to have fewer and fewer times when you wish you, when you wish you could go back and rewind the tape. Mm-hmm. One of my mentor coaches when I was young uh, gave me advice, not just for my athletes, but also for my family. Uh, but he said, coach, you, I know how, competitive you are. I know how seriously you take this. He said, but you need to learn how to detonate your explosives in an unpopulated area. <laughs> That's well said. And I thought, whoa, whoa, exactly right. Don't speak when your mind is not functioning. Mm-hmm. Learn how to silence yourself. Learn how to 
bring yourself down into a peaceful place in the most in the most emotional moments. Um, and he, you know, he said, "I'm sure it isn't just with your athletes that you need to learn to do that." He said, "He said, he said, because we had a we had a pretty large family." And he said, "You know what?" He, he told me one time. He says, I, "I imagine when you get home, you're still coach." And I said, "Yeah," and I was probably 25. And I said, yeah. And he goes, your kids, your, your girls don't need coach. They, they need dad home. They, they don't need coach home. Mm-hmm. And, and here we go back to application. He said, you need to put a little sign in your garage when you pull it in. And the sign is to say, dad's home. And he said, you need to take whatever's happened that day, whatever emotions you've got, whatever issues you've been facing. And he said, you need to stay in the car until your dad. And boy, I used that my entire career. <laughs> you know, you, it's it's horrible to, to to do stuff that that hurts kids, any kids, but especially your own kids. Yeah. You know, they need they didn't need Coach Brown home. And there, I'll admit, there are times I sat in that car and was like ringing the steering wheel for like forty minutes. You know, just <laughs> like made the transition, especially when I was young. But. You know, uh, yes, yes, we all have those memories of, and I and I learned that one of the most powerful things, and also helps with your trust, is it's okay to apologize. Yep, it's okay to apologize to a fourteen-year-old kid. That's something a, a mentor taught me early on, and I joke when I got into administration, it was something I didn't miss about coaching is I wasn't going back at least once a week to somebody saying, "Hey, my bad, I I, I didn't do that right," and mm-hmm. just less emotional environment as an AD where you got a little more space, but <laughs> certainly don't don't miss that. <laughs> well, I want to. Um, if I didn't have somewhere to be, I'd want to talk for another two hours, but. Um, we got a ball game I got to get to. Um, we always end with what we call a rapid fire round. Well, I'll ask you just four or five questions and you have no longer than 30 seconds to answer any of them. Okay. So you, you ready? Ready. So what is the one thing that you want people to know or understand about what we've talked about today? Uh, I, I just think that, the, that this style of coaching allows you to win. Uh, here's something we didn't talk about. I'm writing a new book. It's my last book. I'm because of my age, I've been a lot of last, last mailbox, last the deck, last car, <laughs> but last book, and it's on coaching for significance. And I'm writing about four coaches who I think were coaches of significance, and I'm writing it through the eyes of their players. Oh, cool! And it is amazing how these people impacted lives. So wow. that's, that's right when is there. that coming out? You know, I'm done with it. And I've got two, uh, it's, it's, it's Dick Vermeil, who was one of my long distance mentors who I've had a chance to meet and spend a lot of time with. Uh, it's Pat Summit, who I haven't had a chance to, you know, she's passed away, but I, and I never got a chance to put one of her long-term assistants uh, as, a, as a great friend, a mutual friend of ours. Um, Tim Corbin, the Vanderbilt baseball coach, and Heather Tarr, the University of Washington softball coach. And it, it's all done. And it's just kind of like, how am I going to do it in four different sections? So I'm just kind of thinking cool. about way i'm gonna do it yeah cool well we didn't follow the rule 30 seconds we'll we'll do better this one um what is one book that has greatly influenced your life purpose driven life do you do you have a favorite failure that you've learned from well 
I think that, that explodes a lot of failures. So I'm not sure. Uh, here's another book that I give away all the time, that we give away all the time, is Jesus Calling. Okay. And that the daily devotional that grounds you to start your day. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, how do you define success in your work now? The number of uh, people we work with. When I was a coach, it's the number of kids I worked with that stayed in my life and took the things that we had were teaching through sport and now have applied it to their own life as a father, as a teacher, as a business person, um, and that people that have stayed in my life uh, did that. And now it is the number of coaches that continue to reach out uh, and continue to say, okay, um, I need more clarification on this. Because everything we do, we always say, Anytime you have any questions about the content or the, you know, the application, call us. And so for me right now, it is the number of calls and emails I get from coaches. Uh, not just successors, but people who are struggling. So that, that's, that, that's a win. Gotcha. Two more. Other than this one, what's your favorite podcast? <laughs> Casey Jaycox. Casey Jaycox. Casey and his, and his uh, podcast is QB Dad. QB Dadcast. Okay. And it's, uh, it's, I'm a grandpa now, and it still touches my heart to listen to him and talk to people about, you know, what, how, how they became a dad or what impacted them or what changes. Or, it's, 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 it's coaching. It's the same as coaching. Yeah. Rob, it's the exact same thing as coaching. Parenting and coaching are two parallel tracks. Yeah. Cool. I'll check that out. Last one. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? At my age, I, I, I want to remain curious. I want to remain curious about life, about how I can get better. Uh, I want to continue to strive for growth. Um, I, I, I don't want to stop growing. Um, and I think curiosity is... I think curiosity is is critical there. So for me, I, I, a day is a success when I've when I've challenged myself and had to learn something new, or maybe didn't even learn it, but I know that I I know that I'm going to keep digging away until I do. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, this has been really rich. I appreciate it. If if people want to learn more from you, is the best place to go your website? Yeah, they can go to our website, or or they can um, you know. Uh, I can give you my phone number or email address or whatever you want. I, you know, that's, I'm old. I say, oh, I talk on the phone. So that's what I do. So, okay. <laughs> cool. I'll get your contact info. I'll put it in the show notes and people can reach out or they can go to your website at proactivecoaching.info. And it's mm-hmm. pretty easy to buy a book. I bought the impact of trust as we were sitting here talking. So, well, so go out tomorrow. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Rob. Appreciate what you're doing for uh, the profession and for the individual athletes that those, that those coaches are going to reach. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Coaching. We hope today's discussion provided you with insights and understanding and leading. As always, thank you to the 3D Institute and Friends University for their support and passion for empowering leaders. And if you have any questions for today's guest or myself, all our contact information is in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in.